right. Do you see the thing to unmute yourself at the bottom? Yes, I was just waiting. Hello, everyone. We're live, right? This is all live. <laughs> uh, it is. It is. Although we could uh, we could revise the record later, edit it. <laughs> no, no. I, I I choose every single one of my words very carefully, so it's uh, all perfect. Outstanding. Well, I am now joined by Daniel Bessner uh, from Jackman Magazine, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, uh, historian academic uh co-host of the american prestige podcast um i don't know lots of other stuff how you doing Danny? yeah that's more than enough uh things are good things are good how are you ben <laughs> i am all right i will say uh that as anybody who watched the show on youtube last night knows i am out of power the uh, power is out at uh at my apartment and they still have not restored it so do, you, this. do do people know where you live, or is that secret? Uh, it is not secret. I, I live. Oh, so uh, you, you, so this is in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, That's, how long has the power been out for? Uh, it's been out for a little over a day. Oh yeah, I've I've lived in Mexico City. I've never lived in Baja, but um, yeah, I wonder what the infrastructure there is like. I, I would I would always get like um, the internet in particular would go out in Mexico City. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, Wi-Fi has actually been fine with the powers on, uh, but and I have no idea what happened. It seems like it's been out in a lot of the like there are even parts of downtown where it seemed to be out. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does, and you know, God knows, maybe I mean it's not like I've never had the power be out in uh, in the United States, but it does feel like it sort of goes with the scenery since I live uh, on a dirt road that you know I sometimes see like you know. Horses walking around not in a border town in Mexico, so it's like, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, that that yeah, it's uh, you, you trade some things, you know. Uh, it, it's probably worth it though. Baja is amazing. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. But so yeah, last night uh, on uh, on the main show, uh, <laughs> on an episode where we had like. Three times our our normal viewership because of the guests. I uh, I had to I had to do it on my phone. Uh, is, uh, is what Who was the guest? Who was the guest? Oh uh, well, it was guess? Jason Miles and uh, and Ara Brown and Sam Cedar. Sam Cedar. Uh, so so Sam Cedar was the guest that drew everyone. Well. Sorry, I didn't hear the rest of that, but the uh, but but the you know the point is just uh, at a time when I was particularly uh, was particularly poorly chosen to have this happen because we had much higher viewership than regular. But um, Did, but are you able to uh, in any case? Uh, I heard that. Okay, uh, can you on, hear so, me? So Sam was the one. Yeah, was Sam the one who uh, who drew the uh, uh, the viewership? Is that that the cause? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Because the other two were on pretty regularly. Cool. Yeah, but oh, interesting. Um, but in any case, you know, it's also the last, uh, the last like regular show we were doing before the you know, New York this weekend. So there's probably just 
more people tuned in because of that. But uh, in any case, uh, are, you flying out of, are you flying out of LAX? I am flying. Uh, actually, I'm flying out of um, San Diego. Uh, probably. No, I'm, I'm flying out of a of a small out of the way airport that's near the uh, that's 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 near uh, where my family is because I'm dropping off uh, dropping off Lucy to be dogs out while I'm gone. Oh, cool! Nice. So, uh, so yeah, uh, but I am going to make it up to LA again uh, very soon. It has been too long. Cool. Um, but that is not what uh, what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about uh, your piece in the New York Times uh, on uh, the actual end of history, meaning the <laughs> end of history as a academic profession that pays a living wage. Yes, yes, uh, that that is what that piece is about. Yeah, so this is, um, I mean, it, it seems like the, the setup here is that there's this, um, that there are these, like, we, like, you know, it's, it's like uh, one of those graphs, you know, where there's, there's the line that starts on the left side of... Uh, uh, that you know that's that's going uh, that's going down while the other one's going up, uh, and you know one of them is sort of public interest in history, particularly in the context you know of um, of political debates that you know sort of like people like you know not just you know Tony Soprano sitting on his couch watching the History Channel, but uh, but people being interested in the sort of like hotly contested like uh f- fights and you know culture wars about uh about our our shared history and on the other hand uh, <laughs> the fact that um that like actually going to graduate school to become a historian seems like an increasingly bad idea absolutely and i think matt carp's essay which was on the cover of harper's in the summer of 2021 really goes into the the reasons why history has become uh, a, a battle or a, a terrain in the culture war. And so I would really um, point people toward that. But uh, what I was trying to point out in the op-ed was that there's this irony where uh, where history is this, this really important uh, issue in the culture war. And, and in a way, that's not... Um, like it was in the past. I mean, history is always something that people have argued over, et cetera. But in, at least in, in more recent history, it is kind of focused around curricula battle. But this mm-hmm. is really like a hyper elite discourse that discusses the role of history and, um, you know, like what it means to be an American in an almost existential sense. But the irony is that, you know, as history itself in the 1619 project is probably the most salient example of that, though there's also... Um, the uh, 1776 project, which was a response to it, but uh, that that there's very few um, jobs for professional historians upon which basically that work rests, um, regardless of what you think of it. it. It rests in some fundamental way on the work of professional historians, but um, attend track jobs are effectively going away. Uh, and it really does not make financial sense for anyone except people of extraordinary means to become a historian. Uh, and that will necessarily affect the types of history that is pursued, the types of arguments that are made, um, because class background does shape how one views things, generally speaking. 
Yeah, I mean, if it's a if it's a hobbyist thing uh, for uh, for for rich people, essentially that the that you have to have you know that you know somebody who who doesn't you know who doesn't need um, you know who doesn't need a job uh, basically and. Uh, but this is, you know, this is like the thing they're doing with themselves. Then, uh, then you are, you know, going to get, um, yeah. I mean, like, like you're going to get very different kind of history. Uh, I also wonder, by the way, if besides, you know, people like that, you know, who can still sort of, uh, I mean, in some ways, like this is the same as a lot of kind of traditional um, uh, professional jobs that you know there used to be more upward mobility for because there was just less precarity and you know more to go around. Like uh, like media is an obvious example. It used to be that you know you could you could be like a working class kid who wrote well. And you could get a job as a journalist, and that was like much more available. Whereas you know now things are are more financially squeezed in ways that um, that at a lot of like media institutions, um, if you if you you know if you can't afford to like just basically not have any money for at, at the very least a prolonged period of time while you're paying your dues, you know that's just not something you can do. Right. Uh, exactly. And. Um, I think journalism is connected, but is also in some way different um, because journalism was always more of a, of, of a profession in the traditional sense where like you would go to an office and do work every day to produce a daily newspaper. Um, and a lot of that work is still being done. It's just being done in an incredibly poorly paid fashion. And 99% of people who do journalism have other jobs or are independently wealthy. History is more akin to arts funding in a sense, um, which is also something that has gone away um, in, in, a, in a real way. And the example that I like to bring up is someone like Larry David lived in basically subsidized artists' housing until he made Seinfeld. And that sort of... Um, artist housing really did lead to, you know, allowing artists to develop their craft and, and, and did lead to some great work. And I think history lies somewhere in between art and journalism in that it's it's not going to the office every day in quite the same way as journalism is or was. Um, but it's also not like the free floating artists just interacting with the muse. Um, it's somewhere in between where you do have that element of the free floating artist, but you also have this, you know, you teach in a regular schedule and, and, and you're part of this institution called the university. Um, so history is, I think, interesting uh, way to get at a lot of those issues because it occupies that space between the sort of profession and the arts. And it just I, in the general way goes to show how all three of these spheres have been radically underfunded and, and just disinvested yeah. in. Um, over the course of, of, of time. And I, I also think that if you look at the history of history, of, that is the discipline of history, it, it is a bit different because the country really only funded history at a very particular historical moment in the early Cold War when the United States was very rich and also wanted to show the world that its artistic productions were as good as Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, and uh, Tchaikovsky. It just did, uh, U.S. art, American uh -huh. art didn't have that reputation. Um, and then once that interest went away by like 1965, you see basically the decline of the humanities over a, a period of decades. Um, so journalism, I think why it declined is for different reasons related to technology and things like that. So I just also wanted to say that. 
Yeah. Um, right. You could. Uh, right. That makes sense. That the that uh, the decline of uh, the decline of journalism has to do with the um, you know with like people just intaking in. In, in, in different ways so that like old business models you know don't really work anymore um that you know which you know has like i don't know i mean i think about like like even even like the nation right you know which is like the best place i ever published like it's it's like the uh that's um <laughs> Uh, you, you'd have to write an awful lot for them to, you know, to make any, uh, to, uh, to, to be able to, to support yourself off that. And, and even though it's the same, yeah, it's uh, the phenomenon plays out. It's, yeah, it's just not. Yeah, right. I mean, not, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, and even, um, and even though, I mean, in some ways it's, it's very similar with, you know, with academia, I mean, like, look, I've been, a you know, freelance writer, and I've been an adjunct, and there are definitely some similarities, you know, between those two, uh, those two things. But um, but that has to do with the long term decline of of, uh, of state funding, you know, more than uh, more than anything else. Uh, but but I am, you know, I am curious about you know, be, and you know, if anybody you know anybody wants to call in and have a question for Daniel, get you know, to go for it. You know, we can we can take a call in a minute, but in um, I am curious both sort of about, you know, some of what's being lost and also about what uh, history writing looks like in the, like, as it becomes more and more, um, like, actual tenure-track jobs, you know, as a historian, uh, become you know, become more and more rare, you know, because, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we've been talking about in terms of earning a living wage, which is one important question. Uh, but also, you know, another important question is just like it's institutional independence that, you know, that if you, you have a, I mean, the whole, uh, you know, the non-economic or, you know, economic in a different way point of, of tenure is that you, you know, is that you could, uh, you don't have to worry that if that, people getting mad about what you say you'll still have a job regardless right right um and 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 the security of tenure was always unique in american society as as you know and i'm sure most people know and that's the type of protection that anyone should have but um Uh i think it's just it's just people are going to be less willing to be adventurous in their work now some might say that most academics aren't adventurous in the first place and, and I would agree um, but I think it's the idea sure. that we should be reaching toward in, in this particular situation yeah and I also think there might be something to be said for like okay look nobody needs to convince me that like 99% of academics suck uh, you know like I, I, I have, I'm firmly in the camp of thinking that you know and I think there are a lot of reasons for that that we could we could get into uh, the uh, the 2020 election helped helped uh, convince me of that <laughs> for uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, watching people who I knew from from academia you know, react to that and uh, you know I don't know. Well, I mean, over people Elizabeth. are just more politicized now in a, in a way, and, and so sort of people take 
different types of positions than they would have beforehand, you know, and, and stuff like that. No, that's definitely true, right? Uh, and, yeah, I mean, but I, th- I think there's like a certain lack of, uh, <laughs> you know, there's like a certain lack of uh, adventurousness, courage that is manifest in both the sort of old regime and the new regime in, in different ways. But I also think there's something to be said for the idea that, uh, that you know, it's important, like, like the way that the protection has positive effect isn't that the majority or even the vast majority are going to take advantage of it. It's that, you know, it's that whoever will is going to have right. it. And, you know, you want to have those people, you know, that, that, uh, right. Right. Precisely. Yeah. We're in a, exactly. I, I think we, we both have the same, uh, perspective on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you could, uh, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, Noam Chomsky could spend decades at MIT, which was, which is supported to a great extent by Pentagon money, <laughs> and, uh, and and they, um, and he and he was you know untouchable you know in that uh, in that position, but but I'm so yeah like I said I'm curious both about you know kind of what's been been lost and what's going to come replace it because all right if if we're talking about becoming an academic historian then sure, I could see that as there are fewer and fewer good jobs to go around, uh, people who nonetheless go to graduate school and, and take their shot and all that stuff are more likely to be people who can easily afford to take the, the you know giant financial risk, and uh, that's going to skew in, uh, in a more economically privileged direction. I definitely see that... Um, you know, I definitely see the concern about uh, about what's uh, about what's lost there in terms of work that being produced by uh, by historians who who do who don't who come from less you know economically privileged backgrounds. But I'm also curious, like besides like rich people still you know still becoming academics, uh, what you know because like. You know the original, like the contradiction that you're wrestling with in the op-ed is about, on the one hand, uh, the decline of these jobs, but on the other hand, this intense public, you know, and very political interest in history. And so, since that doesn't go away, I mean, somebody's going to be filling it, and uh, and you know, but. It, it seems like if if there's less uh, academic work being you know being pursued, you know, then there's there are more people who are going to be filling it in non academic ways, which you know is not entirely bad. I mean, just yesterday, um, I was uh, I was driving from uh, Rosarito where I live to Tijuana because I stayed in a hotel last night, and uh, and I listened to the uh, the first episode of the Chop like the new Chapo series of the Thirty Years War. Uh, which I thought was great, right? I uh, yeah. I, lo- I loved it, right? You know, I'd be I'd be very happy if more people were producing, you know, or more more people were producing, the, you know, more things like that, and you know, and yeah, I imagine... it's really good. Yeah, it's really. Um, I've listened to a few episodes, uh, and they're excellent. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, like, there are ways in which you know it's still it's still being. You know, I guess I could imagine there being more things sort of... Sure, uh, yeah. I mean, there could be random things. It's just not going to be at the level of structure. You know, there'll always be random good things. That's that's the But the issue is the structure. Is yeah, how I put that one, yeah. 
Yeah, so do you want to speak a little bit more to that? I mean, like, like, like kind of what's... Yeah, I mean, you know, you need, like, it's, it, when it's a profession, you get a lot more produced, you know, and, and, and it's just encouraged in a way that, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of these individualized, independent things are just never going to be able to um, reproduce because they're not supported at the level of a, of a profession or a structure with stable, uh, jo- with, with job security and um, time and resources devoted to research. That, that's going away in the humanities. Uh, and so that, that's, that's, you know, um, we're going to just get a lot less of it, a lot less knowledge, a lot le- uh, less discussion, um, or at least a lot less discussion that connected to professional norms that I do think are, are worthwhile. Um, I know that there's been a great leveling of culture and there are some benefits to that, but I do think that it it is different to sit and read books for seven years and to uh-huh. undergo peer review than to not. Um, there are drawbacks to that, like there are drawbacks to everything, but there's a lot of benefit in there as well. Uh, and I think you're going to get rid of that structure entirely. It's going to be to the paucity of human knowledge over time. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's I, the way that I would put it. It's yeah. different to read a hundred books than a million posts. You know, it's a different <laughs> level of engagement. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I, I People guess... People don't want that to be true, but it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, fair, right? Like, or or even if you are reading books, uh, there's there are differences between how you're going to read them and what you're going to get out of them if... Uh, if you are just kind of dipping in in a uh, in a hobbyist sort of way, versus if you have like a certain kind of training that allows you to put things in context, that allows you to you know to sort of have a sense of of like how to you know figure out you know what's uh, what's true about what you're reading uh, to uh, uh, to to see you know to uh, you know, to think about, you know, to think about, you know, what it, you know, what it means, what to look for. I mean, like, um, I, I mean, like where my mind goes thinking about all this is that, you know, a few months ago, actually, you know, just before the last live show, I did this debate in, uh, in Chicago with, uh, with Curtis Yarvin. And there's a point where he, he accused me of, uh, you know, he'd like being brainwashed by the cathedral essentially for, for, like, as we were talking about U.S. imperialism in Latin America for, for thinking of, thinking the stuff that most historians think, which he said proves that I've been, you know, essentially proves that I've been brainwashed because what you really need to do is you just need to go on Google Books and, like, you know... Yeah, it's read... nonsense. Yeah, it's just not... I mean, that's an argument people have been making forever. It's absurd. It's just not true. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, do you want to go, like, 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 speak to that a little bit, right? I mean, like, like what's... Because yeah, I think that might not be obvious to everybody. If you devote yourself to debating and thinking and talking with someone in a community of scholars, that gives you a different form of engagement than uh, an autodidactic approach would get. This is not to say that there are not brilliant autodidacts or that there is no useful thing to do, but not everyone is a brilliant autodidact. In fact, most people are a brilliant autodidact. So the only way to get this sort of advance in historical knowledge means that you have to go through a structure of debate, writing, discussion, review, critique, etc. You know, most people aren't exceptional and we should be making our policies on the notion that most people aren't exceptional. Not everyone is goodwill hunting who's able to, uh-huh. you know, to, to, didn't need to go to a PhD program, right? Like there are people like that. 
but most people aren't like that. Right. I mean, it gets obvious, right? Like we're still allowed to have common sense on the left, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh, I mean, the premise of socialism is for, for not ex- non-exceptionalism, right? That's the ultimate premise is that you should be able to live a good, decent life without being a, a, an exceptional person, however defined, which will be defined differently in different societies. But I think we understand how hierarchy works, right, in human societies. Uh, and so that's the basis we need to go from. Yeah, no, I think um, I'd like I, I, it'd be fun though if someone called in and disagreed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it would. Uh, so I will. Uh, I will say uh, uh, we have. And yes, by the way, if you do disagree, please, or or even if you don't, and you just uh, you just have a question, you want to chime in, please, please do call in. But uh, but I do see this question in the chat from Jordan who says uh, can't call in, too noisy here. Um, as opposed to Cold War-driven interest in academic Russian studies to understand the Russian soul, uh, why are Americans instead uh, canceling Dostoevsky in light of the current war and earlier Russian operations and annexation of Crimea, etc.? So I think if I'm Has understanding... Has Dostoevsky been canceled? <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I really tune out all that culture war stuff. There, there has been a little bit of that stuff. Uh, I don't... Uh, <laughs> Like 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 That's right so at the stupid. beginning of the right at the beginning of the war, there was like quite a bit of things like that. Like my favorite example was that the uh, International Cat Federation banned cats that had been bred in Russia from uh, from competing. That's uh, wild. You know that'll that'll show them right. Uh, but, uh, no, it's so uh, silly. Um, that's you really know there were there were like videos of, of um, bartenders pouring vodka out of the street to. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but I mean, like, I think there is a you know the question. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's it's sort of going back. Okay, so that's one way of I think maybe framing Jordan's question, which is to say that, like, sometimes you, like, in different cases of great power conflict, you do sometimes seem to get these two very different reactions, where either it's like you know, yeah, we're going to call sauerkraut liberty cabbage. Uh, or, or else like, oh, we need to, uh, you know, like we need to understand these people and, you know, and, and, uh, and so like that would actually be like, uh, like there was like, even in the war on terror, like there was this sort of, you know, like real outburst of, of interest in, you know, people in like both real and fake Middle East experts. And I don't... Maybe there's kind of been an equivalent in uh, with this new conflict with Russia. To this ex- is not as deeply felt, I, I, I don't think. Um, America, I, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem as deeply felt as, as long as long standing. Amongst a particular cohort, it seems like it was at the very beginning, but even that cohort has kind of gotten bored of the war. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's true. Which, by the way, I should say is, um, I mean, I think I don't think this point should ever go by without being made. I mean, is a sort of underappreciated, you know, anti-interventionist argument in general that um, you know, putting aside everything else that might you know lead somebody to question whether this is even the right way to put it. But I mean, like. If you're, if you are intervening on behalf 
of some very distant population uh, than I remember Alex Gurevich pointed this out a little while ago that, you know, there is this kind of built-in problem that, like, the people who are making the decisions, like, almost by definition, have no structure to hold the people who are intervening on their behalf accountable. I mean, like, that's how, how right. did that work? And, you know, I mean, granted, we don't, <laughs> you know, we can't do very much of that here either, but we we can do a little bit of it. But the, uh, but like, you know, there's there's no way for, like, you know, you know, Kurds in Syria or, you know, Ukrainians or anybody, right, to uh, to say to, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no structure by which they can punish, you know, um, the, uh, the government intervening on their behalf if it, doesn't, uh, if it doesn't do the things that they want it to do. And so, you know, because inevitably, I mean, the domestic population just is going to move on from being focused on any of these things. I mean, like, I, I could sometimes more quickly than others. I mean, like, you know, if you think back to, like, Libya, and uh, right. when was that 2011? I mean, like I, I can remember, like this really intense public interest in that for like a month. That like it was it was really important that we that we go in because Gaddafi was going to massacre these people and we had to help them and etc. And then like you know every and then it's like yeah like if you know you would uh, then like after that there were several years where like you know. Once a year, if you watch Democracy Now!, maybe not even once a year if you watch CNN, there'd be like, oh, here's something horrifying about what Libya is like now. Huh. All right. Right, right. I think that, I think that was broadly correct. Yeah. And uh, yeah, most, it's just, you know, uh, it's a, kind of a difficult thing to be a part of. And, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult to say, stay, stay so involved when you feel like you have so little. Um, account uh, for what actually happens, which you know. By the way, I, I should say, I mean, it is a uh, you know is a reason to uh, to to what uh, you know to what like from a Ukrainian perspective to to what de-escalation of the uh, of the conflict because if um, you know you you come to the this sort of inevitable point where your backers you know lose interest and and move on. I mean, even if you're doing great now, there's no guarantee about what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen then or what kind of position right. you're going to be in. That's a, you know, but, um, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so yeah, I do want to just, just for our last couple of minutes together, I do want to, uh, I do want to pivot back to, um, back to history a little bit, you know, and, you know, we, you know, we've been talking about, you know, what's, what the sort of landscape after these changes looks like and uh, how, um, you know, and, and some sort of like generalities about how it's not as good, but uh, what's like, like, I was wondering if you could spend a, a minute or two just kind of generally speaking to, what um you know like like what kind of like what you did get when you had uh more you know more funded uh you know more state funded for universities in general benefiting history and more sort of interest in uh in in like 
uh, creating history jobs for, you know, maybe even partially for Cold War reasons or whatever that like they have. Yeah, I mean, I think on some level you get more history. And even if it's of an ideological perspective that you don't agree with, you can almost always learn something about what happened in the past. And you're just going to get a lot less written about what happened in the past. And we're just going to know less. There'll be less discussion. There'll be less debate. Uh, and this will, once the universities go, you'll see less of that in every space um, across American society, I think. And so we're going to just lose on a lot of knowledge in a, in a real in a real way. Yeah. Um, and like, just, just kind of concretely, because I've seen you, um, I don't remember how much of this you said in the New York Times piece, but I mean, I've, I've seen you say things like this on, on Twitter, certainly. Like, you know, could, could you just um, give, you know, just, just like talk a little bit about examples of, histo- you know, like, historians who who produced really important work who probably would not have you know if uh if there was a sort of less economically viable path towards you know making a living as a story i mean people here almost certainly know someone like howard zinn who made his career in the academy and people know his work chomsky is another one um you know joan scott just people in the diversity of, of, of fields who because of their working class origins. Um, I'm actually not sure what Joan Scott's origins are, but she really revolutionized our understanding of gender, gender. but from like um, people from working class origins, Eugene Genovese, if, if you've heard of him, a very well-known Marxist historian, um, who later became a kind of a reactionary in his old age, but you know, Pope, but he's perfect. But um, I think that uh, those types of works would just not have been written. And, and so there's going to be almost no way for someone of working class origins to be able to devote themselves to the life of historical study in the future. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, you know, I, I guess maybe just to sort of, um, and, uh, under underlined and circle, you know, some of that point, you know, I mean, that just like, it's not just that, you know, there's, there are fewer academic papers and academic books being produced for people who, who read academic papers and academic books, but like the trickle down effects of that are really bad. Uh, even if not, right. Cause, cause you have, uh, you know, one would hope that even sort of, uh, popular, um, you know, popular level historical writing that's, that's written by non academics and, you know, whatever form in the future, et cetera. Right. I mean that those people are at least reading, you know, what academic historians, right. And so, or, I mean, you know, think about all, all the huge history podcasts. They're all just basically summarizing academic work. Every one of the big, huge history podcasts is most of them are summarizing academic work. Um, so that's a huge way that they get trickled down that, that sort of trickle down stuff. So that if none of that work is produced anymore, <laughs> there's going to be a lot fewer avenues like that. And that's a good thing. I think people should summarize academic work, but you need to pay someone to go sit in the, a, a, an archive for a decade to find something out. Right. And if you don't pay someone to do that, it's not going to happen. Right. Or it's going uh, to be the amateur, you know, the rich amateur. Yeah. And look, uh, <laughs> you know, as a, uh, I, as you know, so nobody who's uh, you know 
Uh, nobody who's spending all of their time podcasting has time to do that themselves. You know, you you sort of can't uh, you know you can't do everything. You know, you need a certain division of labor there. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's... and that labor makes sense when historian. I I think you've actually seen a lot of historians get pissed off at podcasts because yeah. back in the day that division of labor functioned, where like the historian would have a stable job, and it's cool if someone who popularized it popularized it now. But like now, when that like all you have is your book that you know uh you spend a decade on you don't even have a job you're more likely to get angry at people who you think are basically making use of your work without giving you compensation because you don't have the institutional compensation of the university any longer yeah so don't get mad at podcasters guys get mad at state legislatures for uh, for not not funding universities yeah, um, yeah for sure it's not it's not like the podcasters fault but i think that's the um the source of that anger yeah no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so there is a link to that article in the New York Times in the description 